Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Jonah. Lights will come back up here in one second. <clears throat> book of Jonah. And we are in the second half of chapter 3. Second half of chapter 3. Begin reading in verse 5. This is following the message that Jonah had very simply proclaimed to the city of Nineveh. It says the Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Perhaps God may relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. An amazing passage of scripture. The change of the most powerful city in the ancient world wrought by a message from a reluctant servant. This morning, I want to begin by making an acknowledgement, and that is this. Every day, each of us in this room faces various kinds of struggles. We wrestle with sin. We wrestle with our depravity. We wrestle with brokenness. We all know what it is to fail. First John 1 John 1.8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth of God is not in us. One moment we can be experiencing great success in our Christian life, walking with God, everything is going great. Next moment we can find ourselves in a fit of anger and failure. This morning I want you to know this. I want you to know that you are amongst fellow strugglers in the Christian life. We all wrestle. None of us here are perfect. None of us claim to be perfect. We know that our perfection is found in and through the work of Jesus Christ. So we are called by God to be strugglers, God wants his grace and love, you will see in this text, to collide with these struggles in our lives. In that collision, he wants to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. When we acknowledge our sin and we see his love and grace expressed, when they collide, forgiveness and redemption is the result. One writer said this, he said, the lifestyle of this collision is what the Christian life is all about. We're not completed people. We're people on the way to righteousness. We have a standing with God through Jesus, but in this side of eternity, what are we doing? We're working out our salvation. We are seeking to become more and more of what God desires and wants us to be. The Bible is full of stories of people like this. In fact, the first story in the Bible, the story of Adam and Eve, is a story about brokenness, a collision with love and grace and restoration. You can read through the story of Abraham. You'll find the same thing. King David, Peter, the premier 
disciple of Christ, Samson, one of God's judges, the woman at the well, the apostle Paul, and you could go on and on and on. And what do you find in Scripture? You find stories of people who wrestle, who struggle with failure in their lives, but find that failure colliding with the grace of God, and the result is progress, growth, and change. That's the nature of the life that God has called us to live. The key to this collision is the theme of this text. At that collision, when you see the love of God and your sinfulness, what response do you give to God? Okay, the Bible in this text is going to encourage us towards a response of repentance. That repentance is what unleashes the love of God into our lives. At that collision, when we see the holiness of God, we see our sinfulness, our desperate need for His love and grace, and we cry out with an appropriate response of repentance. That is the theme of the second half of Jonah 3. It is a story about a broken city that is steeped in sin, that needs the touch of God, that needs the grace of God, and that needs to experience His free and awesome grace. To bring that message of hope to Nineveh, here's what God does. He sends a messenger and he sends a message. Now, here's what I find fascinating. Look at the messenger. We did this two weeks ago, verses 1 through 4. What is his resume? Chapter 1, verse 1. God says, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah got up and did what? Went the opposite direction. Come to Jonah chapter 3 and verse 2 and what happens? It says, and Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. What is he? What is Jonah? Jonah is a rebel who has been restored by God's grace. In chapter 2, what happens? His sinfulness collides with the mercy and grace of God. And what happens? God restores him as he repents. Jonah, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, became, now please listen to this, he became a sign to Nineveh. A sign of what? A sign of what they needed? I mean, think about looking at Jonah after being in the belly of a whale for three days. Okay, think of what he must have looked like. And we don't, we don't know for sure, but we do know this. We know that Jesus says when Jonah walked into Nineveh, he became a sign. Something about his physical appearance and his spiritual experience was a message to the people of Nineveh. I believe this was the message. God could have replaced Jonah, but he doesn't. Why? Because God is more interested in restoring rebels than he is in simply getting the task done. Jonah goes into rebellion. That's the messenger. He is restored by the grace of God. And Jonah comes into Nineveh as what? A rebel who has been rescued from his sin and its consequence by the grace of God. As a result of what? As a result of his repentance. His testimony is this. God is a God of second, third, and fourth chances. He rescues Jonah from his rebellion. God changes a man, and then God changes a city. The message that Jonah gives is eight words long in most English translations. It was shared in a half-hearted way, but God used it. What's the message? Yet 40 days. And Nineveh will be overthrown. Some translations are going to use, it will be destroyed. It literally means to be turned upside down. Same word is used for the destruction of Sodom in the book of Genesis. The message is a very simple message, though it is not easy to speak. 
We wrestle with this. We wrestle with sharing the judgment of God, his just response to human sinfulness. We wrestle with what it means to communicate that message. Jonah comes, messages, 40 days till disaster comes. Now, you can respond to that message in two ways. You can say, well, what it says is disaster is coming, so there's nothing I can do about it. Or you can say this. God has given to Nineveh a 40-day window in which they can own their sin and be forgiven. See, the question would be this. If God's intent was simply to judge Nineveh, what would he do? He would send Jonah there and say, tell them destruction is coming. But what does he do? He gives a window of time that is frequently used in Scripture for a work of God to take place. Forty years in the wilderness. Forty days for the temptation of Christ. You'll find this come up over and over again in Scripture. Okay, what's going on? God in this message of confrontation is also hiding within it a message of grace. In 40 days, destruction is coming. The implied statement, I think, is unless the people in Nineveh turn to God. So Jonah goes with a simple message that is very direct. It is verse 2, the message that God gave him. And what happens? Well, God works in a remarkable way through the messenger and the message. Okay? The messenger, a symbol of grace. A symbol of what God can do in the heart of repentant people. That's what Nineveh needed to know. They knew that they were a wicked and violent city. And what they needed was a straight-up message from God about their sinfulness that is hard to share. Folks, let's, let's just be honest about this. The gospel of Christ is a hard message to share. Why? Because if I'm going to share the gospel clearly, I have to let people know that their sin is serious with God and needs to be confronted through the grace of God and the blood of Christ. But it's only when we share such a message that true results that honor and glorify God can take place. So. When we take the challenge from God to go and to share the message that he wants us to share, I want us to answer three questions. What happens when we obey God? The first thing that we'll see in verse 5 is fascinating. It says, the Ninevites believed God. Okay? After hearing what? 40 days and judgment is coming. You have a window of opportunity to fly to God for grace, and then judgment is coming. I believe the results in this verse are a miraculous outcome of God's grace working in their hearts. Their response, I think, for Jonah was probably absolutely unexpected. An unexpected response. That, and how quickly does it happen? Well, verse 4 tells us he's in the city for one day. One day he's proclaiming the message. Forty days, Nineveh will be overturned. Verse 5 continues the narrative. The Ninevites believed God. Okay, that is, I believe, a miraculous result of the work of the Spirit of God. Because what we see here is that a proud, self-sufficient city is changed by a simple message from a reluctant, messenger okay but it is a direct message and it is exactly the message that god wanted jonah to deliver and what happens there is a miraculous and fascinating result in a sense here's what happens okay they're listening to jonah in nineveh but who do they hear 
Okay, they're listening to Jonah, but who do they hear? Okay, they hear God. They hear the word, the message that God has given to Jonah. For Nineveh, all of our sharing of God's truth is a cooperative effort. The word of judgment from God always has wrapped up in it a word of grace, an opportunity for people to experience change. And so it should be as we share God's message. Our job is to share the truth of God's word with people, with with the heart conviction that Romans 10, 17 gives us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing what? The word of God, not by hearing my opinions, not by hearing my feelings about what's going on in the culture. Folks, often the church is going off on a lot of issues that are unrelated to the gospel. We're making political issues central issues. We need to make the gospel of Christ, the message that God has given us, Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ coming again. We need to make that message the central message that we are sharing with people. Why? Because when we do that, God will work in unexpected and amazing ways. And so this first phrase of verse 5. I believe is the miracle when they obey God or when Jonah obeys God, they believed and change came. That change is not the result of an impressive message or messenger. It is the result of a great God. Folks, you'll find this when you share the truth of Christ with people. When you see God work, you will realize that that was not a result of my effort alone. It was a cooperative effort with God in an opportunity that he designed where we stand up and speak the truth like Jonah does here. And what happens? God is the one who changes hearts. That should grant us relief and courage in sharing the message. The second question, though, that comes up in this text is, how do we get right with God? Okay, God comes with a message. Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned, will be destroyed. Judgment is coming. Jonah goes, they believe God. How, how does change take place, though? How, how do they move from where they are to where God wants them to be? And I want us to trace out in this text, I think the answer is very simply true repentance. True repentance is how we get right with God. And I think we have to say this when we touch on the topic of repentance. I think we have to say that in the church today, Repentance is not a topic that is popular. It sounds old-fashioned. It sounds like you have to grovel and kind of beat yourself up. Okay, and so we, we tend not to talk in the church a lot about repentance. But in this text, what you're going to, find, going to find is it is the repentance of the people of Nineveh that unleashes the grace of God and the forgiveness of God into their lives. So let's look at this topic of repentance and ask ourselves this question. What are, the, what are the components of repentance? And this, this theme of repentance you'll find pervades throughout the New Testament. John uh, the Baptist came preaching what? A message of repentance. Acts chapter 2, verse 37 and 38. After the apostles had preached the first message in the church, what is the response of the people? Brothers, what must we do? Peter's answer, repent and believe the gospel. Okay, so there is no lasting heart change. There is no restoration of our relationship with God apart from a true repentance. So this morning, I want to suggest for you from this text, three, if you will, components of repentance. Okay, three steps 
that will help us to understand how we need to respond to sin when it is present in our lives. Because I think Nineveh becomes an example for us. That when we see our sin and own it, what does God do? God moves with unexpected and unbelievable grace. So what are the components of repentance? The first thing I think that you see in Nineveh is that there is a conviction of sin. Okay, a conviction of sin. Where does conviction come from? Conviction comes from an understanding of God's moral absolutes and our failure to meet those expectations. Notice what it says in the second half of verse 3. It says, they declared a fast and all of them, the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Okay, what happens? They believe God. They have a conviction a consciousness of their sin before God, and what happens? They flee in his direction. And and here's what you'll find. You'll find that there is an inward expression of repentance, and then there is an outward expression of repentance. Inwardly, they're convicted. They sense their sinfulness. Somebody came and told them the truth about their way of life. So there's an inward conviction, but then there is an outward response. Repentance starts with believing what God says about me. Okay? Repentance starts with believing what God says about me. Because when I believe what God is saying about me, a sense of conviction will come and a need for the help of God will result. Okay, so the first step is that there is conviction as the word from God exposed Nineveh for for what they really were. The word of God in this case is functioning as a mirror. Okay, let me give you a couple of illustrations of how God's word functions as a mirror to bring conviction in our lives. The Bible says this. It says, husbands, love your wives. Okay, that is to me an awesome responsibility. But I have to tell you that that verse more often than not brings conviction into my life, not comfort. Okay, it, it, it points to how I am not appreciating and loving and adoring the wife that God has given me. That's the nature of what God's word does. The Bible says, children, obey your parents in the Lord. What is the natural tendency of children? To go their own way. And then you uphold the standard of God's absolute truth to them to draw them to a place of realizing that what they're doing is wrong. The Bible says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. What does that do? It points to my tendency to want material possessions more than I want God. The Bible says in Proverbs 3, 5, trust in the Lord with all your heart. What do I want? You know what I want to do? I want to control my life. I want to control my circumstances. It, and, and when I read that verse, what happens? There's a sense in which it's, it's, a, it's a challenge, but it's also a means of conviction. It shows me that I fall short of God's appropriate and proper expectations. So what you find is that conviction always starts with the word of God. It is a mirror, James 1 says, that reflects God's truth into our lives. And as we look at this standard of God's word and then look honestly at our lives, what do we experience? Every Christian experiences this. Okay, we experience a sense of, you know what, my life isn't where God wants it to be in this or that area. So there is first this sense of conviction. David says it in this way. Psalm 51 Verse 2, 
He says, wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgression. My sin is always before me. What is David saying? He's just being honest. That living a holy life, living a life that glorifies and pleases God is a battle. It's a struggle. But it's normal Christian living. Okay, we wrestle with the temptations. We wrestle with tendencies in our flesh. Normal Christian living. What does God do? By His Spirit, He brings a sense of conviction so that we can begin to address the areas where our life is out of sync with God. It's exactly what He does for Nineveh. He sends them a message. In 40 days, you're going to be destroyed. They don't even need to know why. They understand their own sinfulness. What do they experience? A sense of conviction. And they begin to act in ways that demonstrate that change needs to take place. Second thing that happens for the Ninevites is this. There is a confession and grieving over their sin. And I think this is so important for us to understand this. A repentance and grieving over sin, or a confession and grieving over sin. What Nineveh in this case does is they agree with God about their behavior. They agree with God about the fact that they deserve his judgment. You don't find anybody in this text in Nineveh saying, no, no, we don't deserve the judgment of God. No, there's a sense of conviction and then there's a move towards grieving and confession. I think the important thing for us to understand here when we talk about confessing and grieving over our sin before God, we need to understand that this is not simply feeling badly about having been caught or exposed. It's not, oh, my wife recognized that I didn't love her today like I should have. I feel badly. Okay, folks, please understand this. That's not grieving over my sin. What that's saying is, I just don't like the consequences. Okay, I don't like when my wife is upset with me or when someone else is upset with me when I have done them wrong. And I I just want to get past that feeling. Okay, confession is is a true Regret, a true sorrow. In 2 Corinthians 7, Paul talks about a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. Okay, anybody that watches the news knows what this is like. You read a story about someone like Tiger Woods or about a a, a representative in the government who gets caught in something. And in your mind, as you listen to the confessions, what you're thinking is this. Is this staged? Is this person really sorry grieving before God for what they've done, or did they just simply get caught? Okay, is there a true sense of brokenness? Folks, I think we need to wrestle with this. We need to say, is what I'm experiencing in relationship to my sin, simply I'm, I'm bothered about the consequences, or I am really grieved by the lack of love for God that is exposed by my sin, seeing how my rebellion against God is exposed by the consequences of my sin. In verse 5, it says that it affects them inwardly. They believed and they fasted and they put on sackcloth. They put aside the normal comforts of life, forwent necessities, luxuries, and comfort. Why? Because to them, there was a seriousness to the issue of sin. It deeply affected them. This city is turned upside down in one day as they understand the holiness of God. Verse 6, it says this about the king. It says, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, and the question is, what is the news here? Is it that in 40 days Nineveh will be overturned, or that the people of God are truly broken and repentant before God? 
We don't know which one, but in either case, as the king of Nineveh hears about the message and about the change that's coming in the midst of his own city, what happens? Listen to this. He rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and traded his throne for an ash heap. Okay, and in the ancient world, that simply meant just to go to the lowest point to express the deepest sense of true brokenness. Folks, he gives up the throne. He takes off the royal robes. What is he saying? I don't even deserve to be the king anymore. Why? He's seen the king of kings through the message of Jonah, who honestly told Nineveh the truth, even though he's doing it reluctantly. He still tells them the truth. And when they see the truth, it breaks their heart. Our grieving, I think this text tells us, and confession must be thorough. Verse 5 tells us, all of them from the greatest to the least, the high and the low, the king and the servant. What? They all have before God a sense of the wrong and of the sin in their life. Verse 8, here's what the king says. Let everyone call urgently on God. And what is that? Let everyone go to God. Be transparent about the problems in your life. That's what he's saying to his people. God has broken his heart. His response is to call the whole city. Come before God. Own your sin so that we don't experience the judgment of God. The grieving and confession must be thorough. The grieving and confession also in verse 8 must be specific. And folks, I think this is important. Confession literally means to say the same thing. Okay, it's not, honey, I'm sorry I hurt you. No, it's, honey, I am sorry that when I spoke, I used those words that degraded you. Do you see the difference? I'm sorry I offended you. No. Be, when you confess and when you work with your children, ask them to specifically state what the sin is that they've committed, what the issue is that they're truly grieving and broken by. Okay, it's so important. I believe that we, when we come to God with words of confession, that we don't fudge, we don't talk in generalities, but that we are very specific. Verse 8, second half, here's what the king says. Let us and let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Now, I told you two weeks ago that Nineveh survived and thrived by violence. They were a wicked city that was brutal and oppressive for a reason. It was their way of life. It was how they held on to their power base, their strength, their wealth, fear, and violence. So I know that when I read this text that this this confession is specific. You can go look at historical documents about the city of Nineveh and find out that this was a plain and wicked city. They were known for violence. You know what the king says? We have a problem with God. We are a people filled with violence and evil ways. We live on a path that is going in the wrong direction. Let us give it up. Let's be specific. Let's not simply, church, confess biggies. Let's also confess attitudes. Let's confess pride. Let's confess our love of money. Let's confess our lack of submission. Let's confess our laziness. Let's be honest with God. Let the Word of God show you 
Go to God. According to Psalm 139, verse 23, God, search me and try me and know my inward thoughts so that I can truly repent. Show me the wicked ways in me. Show me where my life is out of sync with your desires. That's what God does for Nineveh. Through a simple message, he confronts them. And they respond with very specific confessions. Here's how David puts it in Psalm 51. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That is this specific confession about his adultery with Bathsheba. He is not playing games. He's not minimizing it. He's going to God and saying, I have sinned against you. You are right when you speak and you are justified when you judge me. Folks, that sense of Grieving that leads to true confession. That's part of the process of repentance. So what's the first thing God does? He can fix you about your sin. That's what happens in Nineveh. Then the people begin to grieve. They put on sackcloth and ashes. They are truly broken. They give up certain things in their life so that they can experience the true sense of need and express that honestly and transparently towards God. In thorough and specific ways. If you want your repentance before God to be real and to bring about the result that God wants it to bring about, be specific. Say to God, God, I have broken this requirement from you, this law from you. Allow it to affect your heart because ultimately all of our sin is a rejection of God's love and of God himself. It's an attempt on our part to find pleasure, to find satisfaction apart from God himself. That's what all sin is. We need to admit that to God. The last indication of true repentance here is, I'll just give you this simple word, change. Change. You know how you can tell if somebody has really repented? They change. Their life is fundamentally different. Verse 8, notice what it says. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways. Okay, so it's one thing to experience conviction about my sin. It's vital that I move to a specific and thorough grieved confession before God. But it is also critical that we experience a change of direction. I understand this. That change of heart is going to be borne about by the Spirit, but we also must cooperate with God in that turn. On uh, Friday, my daughters went down to the airport to pick up a friend. And they were driving home, and they thought they had gotten on to 287 North. Okay, so my daughter calls me on the phone, and she says, how do we get to the house from Route 287? I mean, using Route 287. You know what my response was? You don't. You don't. You need to, you need to take a, you, you need to turn. Well, you can go you know, north on 287 as far as you want and south on 287 as far as you want. You are going further away from home. You know, I said, I said you guys need to turn or you need to find an exit and do a U-turn because you are going the wrong way. You know how you can tell if somebody is genuinely repentant? Change. True change will always be present. So folks, understand this. If you find yourself experiencing conviction and confessing sin to God in a way that you think is genuine and includes some type of grieving before God, but you don't experience change, okay, 
you're not genuinely repenting before God. Okay, the way that we know that the Ninevites were serious is this. They turned from their wicked ways and their violence. They turned from the things that were bringing temporary benefit into their life. They turned from what? Things that were working for them, but were breaking the heart of God. Folks, genuine repentance will always be expressed in some way through a measurable change. J.I. Packer said it this way. A change of repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of behavior. Folks, here's the thing I want to say to you this morning. I have never had someone come to me and say, I am sorry that I genuinely repented of this or that sin. I have not had that happen. Okay? Why? Because when you experience freedom from your sin through genuine repentance, that is a process of conviction, a grieving sense of confession and change. You have moved back into the glorious light of God. And it is there that amazing blessings are experienced. Here's the question that I want to close with. How does God respond when we want to be right with him? How does he respond? When you come to him and say, God, I am done with this sin. I want to Admit the conviction. I want to grieve and confess. I want change. How does he respond? Does he respond like we often do saying, yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Okay. How does he respond? Okay. And, and notice, because this, this is the other shocking part of this text. Verse 9. Here's what the king says. He says, go do this and this. Give up your evil ways. Urgently call upon the Lord. Perhaps. Who knows? Maybe. God will relent, that is, experience a change of heart concerning judgment and come with compassion, turn from his anger. Maybe that will happen. This king isn't sure that they even will experience it. What does he have? He expresses a hope that God will show compassion, that God will not give what is deserved, that he will not treat them according to their sins. Folks, we have a greater promise than that. We have a greater promise than, hey, if Nineveh, if we get on our knees and if we fast and and put on sackcloth and sit in ashes, maybe God will grant us mercy and in 40 days we will not be destroyed. Maybe. Here's the greater promise, Romans 10, 13. Whoever calls, and the word is to cry out, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. Okay, that is the greater promise of New Testament grace that is experienced because of the shed blood of Christ. First John 1 John 1.9 is the other promise that comes to mind. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John 3.16 God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Whoever believes in Him will not what? Perish, but have everlasting life. Look at verse 10, or at the end of verse 9. God may relent and with compassion turn from his anger so that we will not what? Perish. Folks, here's the good news. This is a message that you and I can take to anyone in the world that we live in. If Nineveh becomes a sign that when, here's what Jesus says, the people of Nineveh will rise up in that day because they, when they heard the judgment of God, they repented. Why? Because Jonah went and preached the message that God told him to preach. He didn't soften the message. 
He delivered it just as God had given it to him. And the result was a true sense of conviction, confession, and change. God has had compassion on us. God has caused the wrath that we deserved to fall on his son. Folks, that is the glorious truth of the gospel. That is why the Bible can say, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Why? Because the consequence of our sin has been borne by Jesus. The wrath of God that was settled to settle upon me, settled upon the Son of God. And we, by God's grace and intervention, are forgiven. Now, verse 10, I think, is beautiful. How does God respond when we want to be right with him, when we express that to him in true brokenness and grief over our sin, experiencing conviction and wanting change? How does he respond? Verse 10 says, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened and that they deserved folks that's the message of grace when you cry out to god when you plead for the blood of christ to cleanse you from your sin what happens he will show compassion i think the message of this text is that ever whoever turns to him he will turn to them he will turn to them jack miller a pastor from philadelphia years ago put it this way In terms of our sinfulness, he said, cheer up. You are a lot worse off than you think you are. But in Jesus, you are far more loved than you could ever imagine. Folks, what's Nineveh saying? We didn't know we were this far off base. We didn't know we were that out of sync with God. But when the message of truth came, what happened? They were crushed. And they went to God, not demanding forgiveness, not God saying, we're doing all the right things. Please forgive us. No. You know, just simply express to God who you are. Everyone, high and low. Admit to God the evilness of your ways. Perhaps. Perhaps. The promise that we have in Christ is greater. He will forgive you. Why Nineveh? Why does he grant grace to Nineveh? So that you would never doubt that he can forgive you. That's why Nineveh is recorded. Jesus said Nineveh is a sign that in spite of their deep brokenness and wicked patterns of life, when they confessed their sin to God, he forgave them. Is there something in your life this morning that you need to go to God with? That's been buried, that's been hidden, unadmitted, unconfessed. God wants to bring you through repentance into the glorious light. You don't have to fear. You can own your sin and bring it honestly before God. Repentance in this text is the painful and necessary path to joy in Christ. Okay, repentance is the necessary and painful path to joy in Christ. So David would say in Psalm 51, Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Then let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you broke do what? Rejoice. You see, repentance is a, it's a painful, difficult process. But after, what does David say? Let the bones that you broke 
in your righteousness. Let them rejoice. Let them express praise to God. What are you repenting of today? Because Christian living really is a life of repentance. We all struggle. And I think First John is clear. If anyone says he is without sin, he has deceived himself. And the truth is not in him. And sometimes we may not see, obviously, the sin. What do we need to do? We need to get into the Word of God and say, God, show me. Show me. I come with a heart that wants to be clean. I come with a heart that wants to experience progress. I want my broken bones to rejoice. Because that is the response of God to the cry of every broken heart that cries out to him. He says to you, call to me and I will answer you. And I will show you great and mighty things that you would have never expected. May we throw ourselves freely on the grace of God this morning. Father, as we conclude our discussion in your word this morning.